So welcome to the Digital Twin Fan Club. This is our fourth podcast, episode four, where we'll be talking to Erwin Frank Schultz from IBM around the how of digital twins. Um, so with us in the studio, we've also got Vicky. Hi, Vicky. Hi there. Glad to be here today. And Owen. Hi, Owen. How are you? Good afternoon. Very well, Simon. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so in this podcast, what we want to do is explore the how of digital twins. Um, how we go about doing them, how we go about implementing them, and how they will impact us as a society. I'm really excited to talk to yourself, particularly Owen, because both of us are, are more from the energy sector background, and it'll be interesting to get that perspective in addition to what we've talked about um, in our previous podcasts, which has been more around the infrastructure space. So starting off, us off, I'd be really keen to um, understand your definition, really, around what digital twin means to you. Okay, um, so we've got a formal definition, uh, which we've published in a paper. Um, I'm happy to attach uh, a link to uh, this when it goes out. Uh, but what I'll give you is, is just my off-the-cuff one to, to make it less formalistic rather than reading off that one. Uh, so uh, th there are various elements, so I'll, and I'll define it based on those. Uh, so the first thing is it needs to be able to answer some kind of what-if question. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's obviously a digital representation of something real. That something can be an object, uh, like uh, a Formula One car uh, or a distribution network. Uh, it can also be something slightly more ethereal. It could be software. Uh, so, so we've uh, have digital twins of software components, for example, to to model how they perform uh, under different um, scenarios. Uh, or, or it could be a human system, so it could be an organization, a business process, something like that. Um, so, so you've got one of those things modeled. You can ask what if questions uh, of it. Uh, and the thing that differentiates a digital twin from just a model is that it needs to be connected to the real world in some way, shape, or form. Uh, typically, that's through IoT, uh, Internet of Things. Uh, type of sensors and so on, but it doesn't have to be. So it could be, if we're modeling a business process, it could be, for example, linked to a dashboard that measures the company's KPIs, for example. Um, and then lastly, it needs to present that output uh, in an intuitive way, in, in a way that's uh, reasonable for its use. That doesn't have to be a 3D model, for example. It could be. Uh, so if, we are, if we've got a digital twin that we're using to understand how you might uh, apply maintenance activity in a nuclear reactor, um, and, and, and we want to see whether a certain tool will fit in a certain space, then a 3D representation would clearly be very useful. But if, on the other hand, we've got a Formula One car uh, and uh, we or simulating what the best option is to do when the pit car comes out on a certain lap time, then uh, it's a Boolean value. It's either pit or don't pit, and, and, and you don't need a complex graphical representation for that. So, so I think sometimes digital twins are always seen as things that have to have complex 3 or 4D models, uh, and that is not the case. So, so digital twins, I think, span much more, uh, and the representation needs to be uh, in line with the... Uh, thing uh, with the decision that uh, you want to take. Um, yeah, so, so, so that, that's my definition of it. I, I will just add to it that fundamentally it's not about technology, it's all about decisions. So you've got the real world, you've got a model of the real world, but the only reason you have that is to take better decisions in the real world. Uh, and by the way, you could bypass the human entirely, and the, the digital twin could be connected into the SCADA system or the industrial control system or uh, whatever you call it, uh, that sits in the real world. So, so you could actually have no UI for a digital twin uh, at all. Excellent. That's really interesting. Um, and it's, it's, it really interests me, actually, um, the way that the term itself, digital twin, suggests that it is a digital and physical representation of, um, of something. And I think that's why people assume that when they get a digital twin, it will look and act like the physical version, but just in a virtual format. Um, and so how do we get people who haven't done any research into digital twins to understand very quickly when they hear the, hear the term that it's not what they might assume it would be? Yes, that, 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 that's a good point. Uh, and, and I've started talking about full scope digital twins, uh, leaving room for things that only 
occupy some space of what I think makes up a full scope digital twin uh, and uh, allow people to go think things that don't quite meet that full specification, a, a digital twin as well. So for example, uh, if you have something in design stage which doesn't yet connect to the Internet of Things, but will once the thing is constructed, are you allowed to call that a digital twin uh, given that it's not connected to the real world yet? And, and, and I, I, my view is yes. Uh, I, I think we shouldn't try and uh, protect the term too much. Um, I, I think yeah, I'm, I'm happy for that to be called a digital twin. I'm quite relaxed about um, not being too descriptive uh, about, uh, or prescriptive rather, about the term digital twin. I mean, we, we had a similar problem with platform. Uh, everything was a platform a while ago. <laughs> too right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and what we did is we then qualified yeah. that uh, and yeah. we said that there are technology platforms. So, for example, cloud computing technology platform. Uh, then there are business platforms, which might include business process management and so on. And then there are industry platforms, platforms like Amazon, for example, that's got you know, multi-sided business platforms that's got buying, trading, selling, everything happening inside the platform. So, 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 so you know, for, for quite a while, certainly inside my organization, people kind of try to protect the term platform to just mean business platforms or, or, uh, or ecosystem platforms. Uh, and kind of gave up and decided it's probably better to allow people to use the word platform uh, and just qualify it. And, and I think we'll probably see the same happening with digital twins. We will qualify the kinds of digital twins that we have. It's interesting because it, it brings in then the question of uh, being able to sell a digital twin as a product, mm. um, which uh, when it's when it's a term that people think that they understand when maybe they don't, that's when um, organisations could take advantage of that and say, okay, we can give us this money and we'll, we'll provide you with a digital twin. But as we've already determined in this conversation, a, a twin, a digital twin could be one of hundreds of things um it just has to answer a, a what if question and, and be a, um a solution to a problem uh, that provides better insight so yeah I, I think that's a really interesting part isn't it because uh many people look at a digital twin it seems and consider them a product or technology you just pull off the shelf but it, it isn't that is it it's that that methodology that way of working throughout the life cycle of a project and what you can do through it. And I think one of the parts that be interesting to unpack a bit further uh, is the idea that is a digital twin a destination or is it a journey as well? And what I mean by that is that there seems to be a lot of focus, if you look on the media, around let's get to that end state of what a digital twin can achieve. And that could be a you know, 10, 20 year journey in some cases, maybe if we start connecting multiple digital twins together. But the use cases is a key part of how you can get incremental steps of value along the route of getting there. And I'm not sure if that resonates with what you're seeing as well, if, if that's the case. I, th I think that's one of the reasons that we've kind of stepped back from being too, too harsh in terms of the definition of a digital twin. Uh, and, and I kind of started using the term full scope digital twin. Uh, and in that usually nobody sets out to build a full scope digital twin which spans all the elements of what a digital twin could possibly be made up of. Uh, often they start off as models. Somebody models something uh, to uh, answer a question and uh, then they say, well, actually, if I connect this model to the real world, I can run it many more, you know, much uh, more frequently uh, because I now don't, don't have to set the starting parameters for my model, for example. I can get them out of the real world. Oh, and by the way, I can then also test the output of my model. Uh, so if, if I ran my model for a certain scenario, take the Formula One case, and a pace card did come out on lap five, uh, and, uh, and I did put what was the outcome, is that the outcome that I predicted, so I can validate my model automatically. Uh, and then somebody uh, moving away to a different example might uh, uh, you know, think of, well, how do I visualize that? Uh, not particularly useful for that Formula One example, but uh, for example, tire wear in, in a Formula One case, you might then think, okay, so now I've modeled how my tires are gonna wear, I've validated that, how can I visualize that? 
Um, and then I might think, well, okay, but how can I tie that into my different systems of record? So I might have an asset management system where I've described all the type types that are available to, to my, uh, to, to my um, team. Uh, and so, so I might then link it automatically to that so I don't have to manually transfer the characteristics of each type into my simulation, but I can actually link directly into my asset management system. And, and that's how I see these things built over time. Now, if, for example, Formula One decides that they're not going to allow tire changes anymore in, in, in a rule change, which they could do in future, uh, then this whole model obviously becomes completely useless, right? So, so at, at least using it for determining uh, what my tire change strategy during a race is becomes redundant. Uh, so that part might be, and I will focus my modeling somewhere else. So, so is it a journey? I mean, I think it's, it, it's a tool, and I think that tool needs to evolve uh, with the decisions I need to make and the decisions that are critical to me and my business. And it's always going to be business case driven. So, so I won't integrate uh, a model, for example, into, I don't know, real world sensors or into a uh, uh, analytics system, kind of an enterprise analytics system or into my systems of record, unless there's a real good reason to do so. Uh, and, and I think the return on my investment uh, will be worth it. So, so I, I see it as a tool which will evolve as I can make business cases for expanding it yeah. uh, and as the decisions that I need to make on the basis of a change. Yeah, yeah. I think gone are the days where people will now try and invest in these type of technologies without actually having any understanding of the possible outcomes or the benefits. The glamour, I think, has um, been eroded slightly. And what I really like about that description there is it didn't actually say that explicitly digital twins need to have a visual representation like a 3D visual, because one of the questions that's come up before is, is a twin only a twin if it contains 3D geometry, which I don't think is necessarily correct. I don't think geometry is needed. And um, one of our, our friends of the podcast, um, Dan Roster, asked the question once, um, is an air traffic control system a digital twin? And he did a, a quick Twitter poll about it to see what people would say. And he got a 50-50 split. Half the audience thought, it, yes, it was a digital twin and half didn't. And that's an interesting part because it's like, well, actually, when you look at it, what makes it up, what doesn't? But maybe that's a, a different question altogether. <laughs> that's an interesting point, actually, because um, it reminds us that it, we should be focusing on solving problems. So one thing that um, I think is really interesting and important to remember is that um, within the built environment industry, uh, we have to remain focused on problem solving. Uh, when we're developing this type of technology rather than creating digital twins for the sake of digital twins or digitalizing for the sake of it. Um, and uh, especially when it comes to things like health and safety, we have a whole array of issues and problems that, that need to be solved and that will be slightly different for different types of projects or different types of um, sectors within our built environment industry. Uh, how, um, Erwin, do you think we could pull twins together in the long run? Um, and what, what do we need to consider when creating uh, this type of information uh, that will allow us to, to collaborate and, and create things like a national digital twin further down the line? Let's look at it functionally first. So, so, so you talked about health and safety there. Um, uh, as per our introduction, uh, I come from the energy sector. And uh, I mean, health and safety is a big issue there as well. Uh, we, for example, uh, developed uh, a solution with a company in Spain uh, that looked at electromagnetic radi radiation uh, after they had a near miss where somebody climbed up. Uh, I can't remember whether, whether, whether there were two parallel uh, power lines. I don't know whether they climbed up the wrong pole or the wrong one was the energizer. It doesn't matter. They climbed up, up, up to an energized power line and, and they had a near miss. And, and somebody said, well, why don't, you, you know, why don't we have uh, electromagnetic detection uh, somewhere uh, on the person to, to, to prevent that. Uh, and actually, that's not a digital twin, that's just a bit of IoT really, but you could model uh, actually completing a job, uh, which is fundamentally no different to doing something very similar, I think, on a construction site, for example. So, so one, I think there is kind of horizontal innovation, uh, as the IoT would call it, uh, between different industries where there are you know, very similar processes uh, that you can model in very very similar ways. But fundamentally, these things need to talk to each other. So, so let's again take uh, something that's very much in the built environment, uh, highways and highways agency. 
and what they do. So if they are modeling traffic flow on a bit of motorway, for example, uh, or a whole stretch of motorway to determine where to widen, where to have smart motorways and so on. Uh, and at the same time, uh, a um, electric vehicle charge point provider is looking at where should I put my charge points along this motorway. Uh, at the same time, um, a distribution operator uh, is looking at network planning and, and capacity uh, in their network. You would have thought that all three of these talking to each other and figuring out where's the best place to put it, where are people likely to stop on the motorway, the kind of highways agency knows that from their modeling. Uh, where would I want to put my charge points? Well, the charge point operator will have looked at where there's land availability and so on. And the distribution network operator will, will know where they've got spare capacity in the network, where the, the minimum of reinforcement in the electricity distribution network uh, would be able to supply such a, a charge uh, charging area. Um, now, that's three different areas to come together to, to make that work. And, and, and I guess the question is, how do we do that? Uh, and if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said, we need standards. We need to agree how we're going to exchange this data. Uh, but uh, maybe it's age, maybe it's experience. I don't know, but, but I'm a bit jaded by that point of view. So my view is we need to understand what data each other have. Uh, so, firstly, we need to tell each other that we have this data and then figure out how to use it. And, and I think that most of this innovation actually happens on the ground. So, a specific use case is developed with whatever is available at the time. And uh, then the standards follow. So, so it's standard, standards following innovation rather than driving them. Now, clearly, when you connect to a uh, you know, 132 kV line, you need to have certain electrical engineering standards in place to, to do that. Um, so, so, they're, 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 uh, so I'm not suggesting that we kind of throw standards out the window and for certain things that are necessary, but I think for a lot of the data exchanges, knowing about the data that you have, what we call the metadata, uh, is actually more important initially than actually the data itself, because then we can determine what is necessary. And if you tell me not just what you have, but in what format, how I can get access to it, is it in a file somewhere, or is there an API that I can call, then we can build systems. And I think initially that's going to be messy. Uh, uh, and, and once we see, hang on, here's a repeating use case, and actually I want to do that with a different distribution network operator. Uh, or with a uh, different um, charge point operator, then standards, I think, can evolve out of that once we've proven use cases. So as a principle, I think it should be metadata driven, it should be innovation driven, uh, and standards following. That's interesting. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm very keen on, on things like uh, Egeria. So the uh, um, ODPI Egeria initiative is, is all about uh, a, an open source project that allows you to share metadata between multiple actors uh, so, so that they can understand what data they have before they even start sharing the actual data itself. What was the name of that project again? OPDI? ODPI, uh, which stands for Open Data Platform Initiative, uh, and uh, a project within that uh, is Egeria, but that uh, is under the Linux Foundation, I think. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it kind of feels like there's a bit of a, a spectrum um, a, across which everyone will sit at different points. And the spectrum being, let's say, of data visibility through to interoperability. And most organizations have a visibility spectrum where they're kind of surfacing and looking in their box and going, oh, what have I got? How does this work? And then sharing that in a very crude or rudimentary way, but facilitating, as, as you say, that initial sharing, understanding the metadata. And then through time, we'll move along that spectrum towards the interoperability where you could, you know, the plug and play, the API style approach, um, which will naturally come later. But you shouldn't focus on that because you miss all the valuable stuff that comes from just surfacing and sharing the metadata at the front end. Indeed. And, and, and initially, maybe building you know, a bespoke interface. So say, uh, if the highways agency tells the charge point provider, in my example, uh, that they can share the kind of where people are likely to stop data, where have people driven for, where, where are people likely to be when they have driven for two hours, 
mm-hmm. which would be a good point to stop probably from a health and safety point of view as well as from an EV range point of view. Um, uh, and I can provide you this data in this format. Uh, then there might be a bespoke interface in, uh, initially. Uh, and later, if, if this seems to be a problem that we want to solve many times over, you can then start standardizing it. But to say, well, actually, before we start exchanging this data, let's go and sit in an ISO committee for a couple of years and figure out what the standard should look like, I think is going to slow down things. Yeah. And do we think there's um, variations in how each sector is approaching it? So uh, we're both from the energy market. A lot of their asset base is quite legacy. Um, They don't necessarily have forms of data that is digitized at all in a lot of cases, you know, paper-based in, in aspects. Do we see that there are commonalities of challenges on how to do this across sector, or do you think there are certain markets uh, taking, let's say, energy and comparing it maybe to motorsport that are, are going to have to tackle it from wildly different angles? I think the principles are similar. Uh, I think the starting points are, ex- as, as you pointed out with your two rather contrasting examples there, they're very, very different. Um, let me give you an example, though, of a kind of way you've got something sitting across many different types of data. So the only digital, full scope digital twin that we as an organization manage that I'm aware of is the weather company, which is a rather complete digital twin of the atmosphere, which uh, from a visualization point of view, it actually does have 3D visualizations, but not like we think of 3D visualizations in a building, for example, which represents the physical thing. There are kind of abstract visual representations that help people understand how weather patterns evolve. So, so a cold front, I mean, there isn't really a big blue line with some blue triangles drawn in the Atlantic. What, there isn't? <laughs> that is just a schematic visualization that, that, that we use to explain how this kind of cyclone is moving across. The weather company also uses rather rudimentary data for, from the weather underground, for example. So if, you've, if you are an amateur meteorologist, uh, and you've got a weather station connected to the internet in your backyard, like uh, quite a few people surprisingly have, I learned. Uh, you can connect it up to the weather underground, and that feeds the weather company's weather models. Uh, so, so here you have some you know, pretty Heath Robinson setups sometimes, which are statistically vetted by comparing their results to uh, nearby other ones and to formalized the informal um, weather stations with Stevenson screens and all the rest of it, but they contribute a sig- significant amount to fleshing out the model. So, so, so there you have quite a discrepancy between really high-tech sensing and, and, and low-tech sensing. Fortunately, in that area, actually, the, the data types are relatively simple and, and, and standardizing it hasn't been too difficult. So getting back to the lack of digital information in uh, a lot of uh, the industry sector and more, you know, the water sector as well, for example, uh, where many of the maps, well, most of them these days are electronic, although a lot of them are not vectorized, so just pictures, just raster graphics. Uh, and, and, and that is very different from, for example, you know, motorsport Formula One specifically, or um, uh, the aerospace industry, which, for example, you know, just about everything there is uh, uh, digitalized. So there's a hugely different starting point. But having said that, quite a few of our uh, network regions in the distribution network have been uh, vectorized. So so there is data available on them. And again, I don't think we should stop using that just because every area hasn't been vectorized yet. So, you know, start using it where the data exists. And that then strengthens the use case uh, for vectorizing the other areas. Because I mean, most DNOs who have non-vectorized, who have got raster graphic only data, uh, would really like to vectorize it. Uh, the problem is that these things are quite expensive because they, they, they end up understanding all our AI and so on. That goes some way to automating it, but in the end, ultimately, it requires people to still connect the dots, and that's expensive. Uh, but if you can demonstrate the value of vectorized data by, for example, linking a network planning uh, model to real-world data that you're getting and using the connectivity model derived from a vectorized uh, geographic model, uh, really builds that business case and, and makes it much easier to justify why you'd want to vectorize the rest of your network. Yeah, and I think it comes back to that the use case bit again, doesn't it? And every every company is on their own path, wanting to adopt or implement a, a the approach of a digital twin, um, and you need to be able to make up your own case for why. I think that example of you know DNOs comparing to other DNOs and saying you've got a vectorized map of your network, excellent. I need to convince my own bosses of 
why, but also how I go about doing that and the steps required. And then that, in essence, creates a marketplace for others in the industry to support. Do you think that it's been harder to implement throughout the built environment, this kind of technology, as opposed to the likes of aerospace and, and Formula One and similar, um, where the way projects are managed, it tends to be the same organisation, uh, company or stakeholder that takes a product from design through construction and into operation. Uh, and therefore, people always assume that someone else should be paying for it or someone else should be delivering it. So, so, so let, let's first rewind the clock to about somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago when Formula One didn't have digital twins and they just started off modeling certain things. So it took them somewhere between five, 10 years before digital twins were established to the point where uh, team managers would actually base their on-track decisions on the digital twin. So you know, just because it's now a given and we know that they all run hundreds of simulations before every race, that's not how they started off. They just started a lot earlier. Right? So, so, so I think we, we shouldn't just see what they've got now. We, we need to accept that they had uh, a, a really long run up and that it took them a long time to get to the point where the computer is trusted uh, and you might make the tactical decision against it, but 99% of the time you do what the computer says, right? But having said that, absolutely. Alignment of the incentives, I think, especially in big bolt environment, from my work, I, th I think the closest we see is the water sector, which has got many, you know, many more capital intensive projects like the Tideway, Thames Tideway Tunnel and, and, and so on. Uh, or then maybe the electricity industry. But yes, yeah, so, so, so this misalignment of incentives, the fact that digital twins really thrive when they span the life cycle of, you know, from design through construction, through operation and through even decommissioning of an asset. I mean, I'm, I'm sure EDF Energy would have loved to have digital twins of all the nuclear power stations that they have to decommission uh, because figuring out how to do that is a lot easier when you can play with a digital model than, rather than having to kind of figure out what's on the ground. And the fact that uh, contracting mechanisms don't align the sharing of digital data is really unhelpful. And I mean, I think you guys have done a, a huge amount with BIM, but a lot of, you know, the fact that that needed government intervention to kind of say, well, if you want a contract for us, you've got to deliver information in uh, BIM level two, I think it is these days, compliant format. The fact that that didn't happen automatically just shows that the incentives aren't aligned. And, and I think we need to have a look at that whole mechanism of how we contract and how the incentives are aligned. Uh, and, and maybe part of it is in smarter contracting and in making sure that people who are kind of at the top end of that food chain make sure that they contract for the right data, even if the cost is then going to be higher. You can't expect to get a, a huge amount of digital uh, output for the same price as somebody who's just going to build your building and, and not provide you any uh, data on it there's maybe scope for a completely change in the business models. I mean, we've seen that with, uh, you know, with Rolls-Royce and you know, power by the hour for engines. Uh, and so the question is, do we need to rethink the whole mechanism of ownership? And should there be a different model from conceptualized design, build, uh, handover, you know, commission, maintain, buy, uh, and decommission? Certainly other industries have shown us that there are different models that can be applied um, and I think aerospace is probably one of the leading ones. Episode, this episode is, of course, on how and how we go about doing it and the actual nuts and bolts and nitty-gritty behind it. Um, so, so what would be your kind of take on that, Owen? And I think an interesting part in reflecting is we often see, particularly in the entrepreneur space, you've got this 10-year overnight success, haven't you, where no one sees the back work that's required for the instant kind of success at the end. But looking at it from your perspective, what do you think we need to do as an industry and as a, a kind of a society in order to do this, in order to implement digital twins effectively? How do we go about it? Okay, I think the first thing that's important is to maybe step away from digital twins as a product. Uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that uh, you can buy many digital twins off the shelf at the moment, nor that you'll be, you know, except maybe in some very niche areas, but, but generally I think digital twins are fundamentally integration projects. Uh, now, you know, if you take the weather company, uh, that is a, a product or a service, uh, but even that is made up of a whole bunch of different things that have been integrated over time. But generally, uh, so if you take my industry, so uh, energy and utilities, 
So if you look at our transmission network, there are a load of models that actually model how energy flows in the transmission model, uh, a transmission network and so on. The problem is they're not connected up with each other. And, and, and you know, the, the lower down you go down the voltage levels in uh, our transmission distribution network, the, the, the less good or, uh, or less accurate the models are. But, but they exist in bits and places. Uh, and connecting those up, I think, is the, is the first step towards uh, a digital twin, linking them to systems of record, linking them to SCADA systems or IoT data that's being provided from the ground so you can get more real-time insight. Uh, and and so, so fundamentally, I think a lot of the components, I mean, we have got asset management systems that define what assets there are. Um, uh, but, but it's linking all of these things up and integrating them together taking the output of our simulation models, for example, and putting them into an enterprise uh, reporting uh, environment so that you can compare the output of those directly with, with what's been seen really in the field um, is, is critical. So, so I think thinking of digital twins not as uh, a little esoteric thing that sits on the side there where some eggheads play with numbers to something that becomes part uh, of our whole enterprise IT system uh, and is integrated tightly at different points with it uh, is, 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 is the bit of education that I want to get out there. Uh, and and as, it's kind of, uh, yeah, as, as we said, uh, it's maybe not, um, yeah, is it a journey? It, it's a tool, a tool that needs to be uh, adjusted and adapted uh, as, for example, things get easier. So with the whole uh, containerization and microservices uh, uh, and API-based uh, IT models that we can see, a lot of this integration is actually getting easier. Right? So, so we can do this stuff cheaper than we could before. So that changes the balance from what is, is um, cost justifiable uh, to how it was in the past. Um, Furthermore, if we look again at my industry in the uh, energy sector, uh, the fact that we're getting much more variability on the edge of the network, uh, electric vehicles charging, heat pumps, uh, EV generation, wind generation, uh, at the edge of the network, that wasn't designed for it, it was designed for having nice big power stations in the Midlands that drive energy hierarchically down into uh, the lower levels of the network. Uh, uh, that means that uh, we need to take many more decisions that we didn't have to take in the past. And, and I think that applies to all other, in most other industries. Things are getting more complex. There are more options, more decisions that need to be taken. The IT is there to make that easier. So, so I think that balance of what is cost justifiable is changing the whole time. And we need to keep on top of that. Uh, and I think that will provide the opportunity to integrate more and more bits together to create bigger digital twins, but only as and when we need them to take better decisions. There's one thing that um, I wanted to ask actually, uh, Owen, is um, for the built environment, towards the end of this year or the beginning of next year, there's due to be the release of some new legislation for all high-rise residential buildings over six storeys, um, which uh, what is the Building Safety Bill, and it's going to require um, owners, operators, clients um, to have a full track of a golden thread of information from uh, planning, design, construction, um, operation, uh, around all the decisions that are made about assets. Um, the idea is that this legislation and the gateways that will be put in place to ensure compliance um, puts direct responsibility on a party for collecting, maintaining, and making data accessible. Um, this kind of legislation in my opinion, will really promote um, trusting data. It will get people to start to appreciate the value of it. And um, I'm not sure how do you how do you think things like or what role do you think legislation, um, government policy, etc., could have um, to play in in pushing forward this kind of technology and uh, increasing use. So the first thing I'm going to say is going to sound a bit negative, and that is that if we have to legislate for it, we've probably already failed in some way, shape or form. Uh, ideally, you'd have the market driving this and, and recognizing the value and doing it in any case. Uh, but that would be in a perfect world. We, we all know that we don't live in a perfect world. Uh, so given the fragmented way, for example, how the built in industry is made up of, of different actors, um, the, the next best, best thing is, I think, then, unfortunately, in some cases, to have to legislate. Uh, and, and so I agree. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, so, so the, um, 
uh, putting so, so, so where the market does not drive behavior, uh, which is in the public good uh, or, or for the public good, uh, then unfortunately, at some point, legislation becomes the only uh, alternative. Uh, and I think that that's what we're seeing here. And and so you know, so I'm always cautious to support legislation. Uh, but but I think in this case, uh, if if applied sensitively, uh, uh, it it can be a force for good. Uh, and and I yeah. So, so if 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 so, so there are certain things where people do not behave. You know, the, the tragedy of the commons, the free rider problem, and so on. So so quite often. People will not do things that, if everybody did them, would be good for society. Uh, but as long as enough people do them, as long, uh, I, I, I can get get a marginal benefit by not doing them. Uh, th th that kind of problem, and we're seeing with you know people uh, in the current uh, COVID nineteen situation, um, where um, it, 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 we have exactly the same problem, and, and, and you needed to legislate to get people to behave. Um, uh, in in a certain way. So so yes, I I I, I think it's it's a way. Uh, I think in the long term, and I see it as a bridging mechanism. I prefer in the long term for us to reshape uh, uh, the the way the industry works so that that doesn't become necessary anymore. I, I think that is a longer term a longer term and more tenable solution. Uh, but in the short term, we're not going to change the way the industry works overnight, and we need some of these things to happen quickly. Uh, and so I see legislation as a stopgap approach to doing that. That's, that's interesting, and one of the points I think that's very topical. So we're obviously doing this this podcast actually virtually at the moment because of the current COVID-19 restrictions. And uh, I'm really interested to hear your views, Erwin, on um, with, let's say, a, a current COVID-19, but also a post-pandemic world. Do we see that as an opportunity or a threat to the agenda of digital twins? Well, so, so firstly, I, I think we should maybe uh, be a little bit more, use it as maybe the, the, the wrong word, but a lot of the modeling that's been doing and which is driving government decision-making and, and decision-making in general is kind of digital twin-like. Uh, it it you know, it's, uh, might be lacking uh, uh, the integration of the real world data, mm -hmm. uh, but the fact that we've got epidemiology models and that we can forecast uh, how many people are likely to get infected, that we can try and model uh, what certain um, uh, actions like you know, keeping schools, uh, children out of schools, closing schools, closing pubs and so on, uh, not having big sporting events, uh, what impact that are likely to have uh, on uh, the different types of contact. Uh, and, and the fact that this is then being fed by data, even if it is, there isn't a kind of a electronic connection between the model uh, and, and the data, kind of makes that a digital twin in, in, in my mind. So, so, so I think firstly, uh, this uh, uh, it, it does show that um, you know, this is actually, we're only using digital twins to some extent to, to uh, make most decisions uh, in this pandemic. I mean, little of this, uh, because the data is lagged so badly, you have to model what's going to happen uh, and, and then see what, whether it had the desired effect. Uh, the second thing is I think that we've uh, realized, uh, and, and I think this started uh, uh, kind of in the uh, beginning of August last year, uh, you might remember that we had a significant power outage um, only a few minutes really in the beginning of August and a lot of questions have been asked since then is have we as a society uh, got the balance between cost and resilience right uh, and I think the conclusion we've come to is that maybe not uh, you know for a few extra pounds on our electricity bill we could have significantly more resilience we've become so uh, dependent on electricity, uh, that uh, you know, maybe we underestimate uh, uh, how important it is to us, and, and maybe we'd be prepared to pay a little bit more to have that extra bit more resilience. Uh, and that's just an example. I think, by and large, you know, our supply chains, um, our PPE stocks. Uh, so, so I think there's a general uh, acceptance now uh, that we might have driven things a little bit too hard, optimized everything to the uh, at the expense of resilience uh, and again a lot of that can be modeled right we, we can model when things uh, what happens if what happens if one of my major suppliers goes out of business or can't source material from china or whatever the case may be uh, so so i yeah. think this creates uh, a, a big opportunity to say 
Uh, if we want to create a more resilient society, we can only do that uh, by modeling how different uh, events can impact us. Uh, there, there's, there's no way we can test this kind of stuff out in real life. Absolutely. Kind of the view that I was going to say, if, this, if we'd been in this situation 10 years ago, even five years ago, how much more of a challenge it would have been for us as a, a society to continue. And I read an article, I think it was posted one of the newspapers, um, saying about National Grid having a interesting situation right now where by, uh, they have a lower overall energy demand happening because we don't have corporations, restaurants, we don't have businesses. Of course, residential usage has gone up, but overall the grid has dropped. And therefore, they're actually having a challenge to maintain it because it's at a lower level. And it's kind of, it gives the other flip side, doesn't it? The resilience, you're right. How do we make sure that we don't have these outages um, because of obviously the cascade effect that happened last August, but also in the sense of now we've got an extreme situation which we can much more accurately model for, but then it tests the network in a way in a configuration that it was never, it's never been done before, having such a low usage. And what, what does that do for us? Indeed, and an unbalanced or, or differently balanced usage. Um, so, so given that there's geographic separation by and large between businesses, uh, a lot of businesses, especially factories and kind of light industry and residential, um, and, and, and one's demand has more or less gone through the floor and the other one's slightly increased. Um, uh, yeah, so, so, so modeling scenarios like that beforehand uh, is. That is, is, is clearly one way of uh, making sure we're more prepared for it when it happens. So if we wanted to bring this back to the, to the how, um, how could we prepare for unknown scenarios? Is it a case of um, carrying on to build twins and collect data um, for real world problems as they are, but ensuring that all of that information that's collected to solve those those problems today can be used and is accessible for, um, for, for uh, testing and analysis when a bigger problem comes along. Yeah, so, so I, I would start slightly further back. I, I think it, it all starts with ask, asking questions, right? So, uh, and, and finding kind of society's answers to those. So, so I mean, when I mentioned that example of the outage uh, uh, in the beginning of August uh, that we had in the electricity network, uh, I mean, I think when you, when you look at the analysis of that, most of the actors actually there acted pretty much uh, the way they should. There, there wasn't a huge amount of blame to be uh, laid at anybody's door. Uh, the point is that a certain set, you know, set of events happened, uh, which meant that uh, the outcome was pretty much what we would expect it to be and what we as a society have paid for. And so I think the question that we need to ask ourselves uh, is, as a society, do we think we have that balance right? And the answer is, in many cases, and moving away from electricity now, so supply chains, all kinds of things that, that where we make daily decisions on risk versus cost, is have we got that risk right? In many cases, we can only answer that question, even if attempt and answer that question if we model things right? because we can't test these things if we're going to if we're going to ask questions like what happens if uh, and and where that if becomes a relatively extreme case something where we can't go back in the history books within the last few years uh, and say oh yes that's where it happened and this is how the system responded to it if we are looking to something like this pandemic saying well what if uh you know imports from uh, certain parts of the world are down by, I don't know, 60 or 80 percent or something. How does that affect our supply chain? Um, those kind of questions can only be answered by modeling. Uh, and and, and, and that's, that, so, so that, that's where I come back to. It's all about taking decisions, but you can only take decisions uh, of, uh, um, of, after you've asked the question and identified the, the fact that you might need to take that decision. So, so it all starts with asking questions about have we got the balance between resilience uh, and cost of light? Uh, what are the things that could happen to our society? Uh, what are the uh, you know, rare, rare events? To what extent do we want to protect ourselves? Then model that, find out what the potential cost is for protecting us against that, and then decide, is that a cost we are willing to bear as a society? So, so are we prepared to invest that to be resilient or more resilient against 
certain events, uh, or are we just going to take it on the chin when it comes, right? So, so that's fundamentally the decision we need to take. Um, and, and that's why I would say it's all driven by starting by the, on those questions. Uh, and then in some cases, modeling and in further cases, digital twins are the answer. Who's responsible for doing that? That's a really good question. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a lot of these challenges uh, are kind of, can be uh, are within an organization to some extent, right? So, so an organization could uh, need to do this for, for itself. Um, so if you're a manufacturer and you've got a supply chain, uh, then you, you need to look at what the risks are of that supply chain. I, th I think that's, that's just you know, good business practice. Now, you may decide that from your organization point of view, you'll protect yourself up to a point. But you know what? If something's really unlikely to happen, I'm prepared to go bust. If that happens, then I go bust and I'll go and do something else, right? And that, that, that's a reasonable response. We, a, a, a small manufacturing organization can't protect themselves against any, everything, right? Uh, and at that point, uh, I think that that, that that is then gets elevated you know, at some point to, to government, where the government needs to decide, okay, so if a whole sector is taking this approach, uh, are we okay with that? Uh, and I mean, when I say the government, they are representing us, so society as a whole, but government is the actor the, the active actor in, 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 in this case. Uh, and that's where the government then needs to look at, uh, okay, um, if, um, if, if all, I don't know, shoe manufacturers have decided that, you know, by and large, they'll protect against that, but you know, anything other than that, they, 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 they can't make the cost justification for protecting against, uh, but I really want shoes in a crisis, um, then, um, uh, uh, then they need to work with industry to, to look at what is the best alternative, uh, you know, so how, how can they help them uh, to, to do that? So, so I, th I think it's a multi-level thing, uh, thing, but it doesn't, you know, the, the, last, the last resort is at the government level. Uh, I, I think organizations need to think through uh, the risk that they are taking, uh, the risk that they're exposing themselves to uh, a lot more than they probably currently are. Hmm. There's a lot of um, concern, I think, about things like IP and um, so if I if I invest as an organisation to develop this level of digital twin or do this kind of analysis or research on the industry, am I then, is it my responsibility to release that to industry so that everybody is in a better position and in that scenario, have I, have I paid for everybody else to benefit? And I think that's the question that people struggle with sometimes, especially around digital twin and this kind of technology. And, and my answer to that is, uh, uh, I mean, if, if you've developed something and you specifically did it uh, to gain a competitive advantage of your competitors and be more resilient, um, then that, that's, that's fine. I, I think for a low probability of high impact events, uh, it would probably be, make sense to collaborate more and 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 i think and, and i mean our organization uh, i mean we bought red hat for uh, 34 billion dollars uh which is a completely open source company we are one of the biggest contributors to open source and and i think open source is a really good way of addressing these kind of problems where as individual organizations it might not be feasible to uh, mitigate against this risk, but uh, as uh, an industry, uh, as a sector or segment within that, um, uh, working together, it may well be. Uh, and um, so, for example, RTE in France uh, open sourced all their uh, or a lot of their energy modeling uh, code uh, in, in, uh, on, on an um, open source project called LF Energy. Uh, so you can download the uh, modeling for, for, for a large chunk of the, um, that, that's been used to design and, and maintain a large chunk of the French uh, transmission network. Uh, and, and, and I think we will see more of that. I, I think I refer, you know, so, so I can refer to something like um, uh, Egeria, so, so the metadata exchange project, mm -hmm. again, open source project, because it's seen as an industry problem to exchange metadata between actors. It's, it's not something that only one person's going to gain anything from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan uh, of open sourcing a lot of this. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I I, I think the value 
that, in, that that individual organizations can then derive is from how they use those models, the data that they input into those models, which is going to be their data. So I'm not suggesting that that needs to be given to everybody, but I think a lot of the logic uh, uh, can can be open sourced uh, as. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's much more to be gained uh, by collaborating on, on, on a lot of this uh, than treating everything as a secret source and, and a competitive advantage. Mm. There's a mindset change piece that needs to happen in some areas, I think, of the built environment industry, but others as well. What do you think the biggest challenge is for how we achieve the aspiration of digital twins? Uh, in the financial system, so it's depreciation might be handled something else. Um, you might have some data around that asset in a geographic information system, in a GIS system. Uh, and these systems might not even use the same identifier for the same asset. Uh, and you want to build a digital twin that's going to model uh, both financial elements as well as maintenance, as well as use, which might have geographic implications. Uh, and so to do this, you need to somehow combine all of this data. Uh, so getting data out of the organization in a format that um, a, a digital twin can use, that's going to usually be looking across multiple silos, uh, it, it, it is a big challenge. Uh, uh, so, so that's kind of from a data content point of view. But then from a data production point of view, I mean, uh, a lot's been said about uh, the amount of data that all these millions of IoT devices are going to be producing and so on. But uh, if you think IoT devices can produce lots of data, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, simulations are absolute data producers. They can produce data as quickly as computers can calculate them, right? Which is a lot faster than you can measure and get them over dodgy uh, mobile networks to, 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 to the center, right? So, so digital twins, generate huge or can have the, the simulation models and digital twins have the capability of generating huge amounts of data which needs to be uh, firstly stored uh, in, in some way shape or form and, and, and then analyzed uh, and not just that you need to also uh, keep the lineage of that data so say if you've got an answer but you don't and, and, and you don't know anymore to, to, you know, uh, to what question that answer answers, there's no point. So you need to be able to trace back an answer from a complex simulation to the input parameters, uh, which might be a combination of parameters that you put in yourself and real world data that was uh, collected by IoT sensors, uh, so that you actually know what the starting conditions were that produced that uh, input. Um, so, so there's a huge volume, there's a huge veracity. So, so all the kind of what has been grouped as the big data problems, you can talk about the four or five Bs of volume, veracity, and so on, uh, are, are, are you know, 10 times more, uh, an order of magnitude more uh, important uh, and, and difficult to manage uh, with uh, digital twins. So, so, so that, that's the only other thing that I'd add. Uh, is I think the biggest complexity uh, is, is around data. Dropping some knowledge is excellent. <laughs>